Love life. Well, hey, y'all, I want to say this one thing about the coronavirus, and then we're going to move on to the message. Um, And this isn't about canceling services. David's already handled that part of the message. This uh, is about the real priority during times like this, and that's the sort of witness that we get an opportunity to display to the watching world around us, church. Let us, this is my challenge to you. Okay, our governor uh, asked us to cancel church a couple days ago as well, so we've been thinking about it. So so this is my challenge to you. Let us during this time be a people of peace, of prayer, and compassion. Peace, prayer, and compassion. In the face of fear and uncertainty, let us be confident in our hope. Let us pray often for our government officials who are working hard, for hospital administrators and leadership and medical staff who are working really, really hard and in some cases putting their lives in danger and for the sick in our country. Uh, We've got a couple of cases right across the street from our church in one of the local hospitals, so we've been praying hard for them. And then last, be a people of compassion. Okay, let's rise up, check on your neighbors. Let's let the, the world know what the church looks like. We have no fear of death. All we have is love and love wins. Uh, Heavenly Father, I pray over this church. Man, I love this church. And I know it's at the heart of this place. And so I know that during times of uncertainty, um, that this church will rise up and be a beacon of grace and love in this community. Unleash it well. Let this opportunity to witness be one that bears great fruit through the kingdom of God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, Thursday night crowd, will you guys do me a favor? Right now, the Sunday crowd is joining us online. Like, not, okay, not right now, not right now. But like, right now, the Sunday crowd is joining us online. So would you do me a favor? Would you welcome them into the room, Sunday crowd? We are so glad that you are here with us today. And I'm certainly glad that those of you uh, who made it to the room, uh, you are here with us right now. We get to start off a brand new sermon series leading into Easter called Better. And the point of this series is onefold. It's to make a case to you that Jesus is in fact better. And I know for some of you, I won't need to make that case, but for others of you, I might. Now, they've given me a particular topic today. I get to talk about why Jesus offers better promises or why he's the better promise giver, the better promise keeper, if you will. And I want to add one caveat to that topic right now, okay? Um, Here's the interesting thing about Jesus. He actually doesn't offer better promises than other religions or uh, or other irreligious worldviews. Did you know that? Pretty much every religion offers a heaven, Pretty much every religion offers a salvation of some sort, nirvana, an afterlife, a paradise beyond death. And even irreligious worldviews, even they offer salvation of some sort in this life. Here's the path to happiness. Here's the path to, to inner peace and contentment. Even atheism. Atheism says if you just throw off your beliefs in God, then finally you'll be free to live the 70 or 80 years you got. So every religious or irreligious perspective offers promises. But here's what makes Jesus' promises better, no best. He actually keeps them. Uh, For years now, he's been capable of and he has proven the power that he has in being able to capitalize on his promises. And today, I want to show you that. I want to show you that. Now, to show you that, uh, what we're going to have to do is we're actually going to have to deconstruct every other religion or worldview to ever exist in about 28 minutes. So... We're going to grind through this pretty quickly, and, uh, and here's how I want to do it. I want to do it by looking into this scene from Luke chapter 11, where Jesus actually deconstructs the rival religion of his day. He just tears it apart. 
And what we're going to do is we're going to use his framework of deconstruction to look at the rival religion to Christianity today in our culture. And it's not Islam. It's not Buddhism. It's not Hinduism or anything that you would expect. In fact, it's not all that spiritual at all. But you'll see when we get there. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read Luke chapter 11. And uh, I just want to ask you to do, if you're in the room, stand with me. If you're not in the room right now and you're watching us online, I would ask you just out of respect for the word of God, right in your home with your family, would you guys just stand up? Okay. And we're going to read from uh, Luke 11 together. Luke chapter 11, starting with verse 37. You get a dose of, of Jesus here. And, and this is the Jesus who's not necessarily all that nice. It says, as Jesus was speaking, uh, one of the Pharisees invited him home for a meal. So he went in. And he took his place at the table. So he's with the Pharisees. His host was amazed to see that he sat down to eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony required by Jewish custom. So then Jesus said to him, You Pharisees are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and wickedness. Thanks for coming over for dinner, Jesus. Fools, he goes on. Didn't God make the inside as well as the outside? So clean the inside by giving gifts to the poor and you will be clean all over. Oh, what sorrow awaits you Pharisees, for you are careful to tithe even the teeniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore justice and the love of God. You should tithe, yeah, but do not neglect the more important things. What sorrow awaits you Pharisees, for you, sit, uh, for you love to sit in the seats of honor in the synagogues and receive respectful greetings as you walk in the marketplace. Yeah, what, what sorrow awaits you though, for you're like a hidden grave in a field. People walk over them without knowing the corruption they are stepping on. Now, one of the lawyers, and apparently the lawyers were invited to the meal with the Pharisees. So one of the lawyers in the room speaks up and he tries to take up for his buddies. He says, teacher, said an expert in religious law, you have insulted us too. And what you just said. And Jesus is like, yeah, I got enough to go around for everybody. What sorrow also awaits you experts in religious law. For you crush people with unbearable religious demands and you never lift a finger to ease the burden. What sorrow awaits you? For you build monuments for the prophets your own ancestors killed long ago. But in fact, you stand as witnesses who agree with what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets and you join in their crime by building the monuments. This is what God in his wisdom said about you. I will send prophets and apostles to them, but they will kill some and persecute the others. As a result, this generation will be held responsible for the murder of all God's prophets from the creation of the world, from the murder of Abel to the murder of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, it will certainly be charged against this generation. What sorrow awaits you, experts in religious law, for you remove the key to knowledge from the people. You don't enter the kingdom yourselves, and you prevent others from entering. And as Jesus was leaving, it says, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees became hostile. Wonder why. <laughs> and they tried to provoke him with many questions. They wanted to trap him into saying something that they could use, him against, uh, use against him. All right, that's the word of the Lord. You can be seated. And wow. Okay, it's like, haymaker, haymaker. I'm like, Jesus is throwing heat and it's like spring training still, right? Like he's, he's bringing it here. Now, that was a long passage and Jesus says a lot of very, very strange things there. So what I wanna do is I wanna just go back and recap all of it real quick, just to make sure in layman's terms, we all know exactly what's going on here. So first, uh, I don't know if you saw it, but Jesus gets invited uh, to the house of a Pharisee. Okay, did you see that? He's invited to the house of Pharisee. And uh, for me, that's all, already kind of a little bit strange because if you read the gospels, what you'll see is that Jesus and the Pharisees are like arch nemesis. 
their enemies. Why in the world is Jesus eating with them? Well, here's what else you'll see if you read the Gospels. As a matter of historical fact, if you ever want to get on Jesus' busy schedule, all you have to do is bring up food. Your homeboy carpenter from Galilee knew how to eat. Man, Jesus liked to eat food. He was always doing stuff with food. He would go into towns and literally throw parties at people's houses. Hey, we're coming to your house. Make sure there's food tonight. Like he would do food miracles, water to wine, feed 5,000, 4,000. He even gave food scoldings like he does right here to the Pharisees. So Jesus and food, unstoppable force for like 2,000 years. Now, uh, he sits down to eat with the Pharisees and he does something interesting. Do you see what he did that, that kind of set him off? He didn't wash his hands, didn't wash his hands. Now, we've heard a lot about that this week, but you need to understand that 2,000 years ago, Jesus, uh, uh, the culture that Jesus lived in and, uh, and the Pharisees and all, okay, they didn't have any understanding of like germs and bacteria like we do today. So the hand washing they were referring to was a religious ritual. Basically for the devout Jew, they believed in what I would call a viral model of ritual impurity. If you touch something unclean, then you became unclean, and everything you touch after that becomes unclean as well. So let's say a, a Jewish person touched like a, a pig or a dead body, unclean to them. Okay, that makes them unclean. Then let's say they went to the market and they were like, hmm, nice bottle of water, I might buy it. No, I don't want it. And they walk away. And then you come up and you pick up the bottle of water and you're like, hmm, I might want it as well. No, don't want it. Guess what? Now you got the cooties, right? Because from pig to them to bottle to you, it's a viral model of contagion. Do you see? So that's why they were constantly washing their hands, especially before meals, because in meals you're passing around cups, you're passing around food. You don't want everybody to catch the cooties. Now, here's the interesting thing. It was not unbeknownst to Jesus what was going on. He knew about the hand-watching ritual. The reason why he does this here is not because of ignorance. It's because I believe Jesus wanted to pick a fight. Oh, there's no doubt about it. Okay, uh, so have you ever been watching like a sporting event, like, a, I don't know, like the, like the Bengals on TV, right? And, and they're at Paul Brown, and they're all dressed up, and like they're black and orange, they're tiger stripes, everybody's going crazy in the stands. And then all of a sudden, the camera pans the crowd, and there's like that one Steelers fan there with a terrible towel, like, oh, you know? And everybody's like, oh, and they're like, oh, okay. And, and they're not even playing the Steelers. They're like playing the Buccaneers or something. It's like something stupid. But the Steelers fan is like, oh. Now, let me tell you, that Steelers fan is not dressed up in their Steelers garb because they didn't know it wasn't a Steelers game. No, they're doing it because they want to pick a fight. And in this story, Jesus is that guy and he gets his wish. He picks a fight and he sets it off on the Pharisees. Now, did you see what he said to him? Six things, I wanna put them uh, in simple terms for you right here. So here's number one. One, he says, you care more about curating the outside. Uh, you can put that slide up there than cleaning the inside. Luke eleven thirty nine. 39. Two, uh, next slide. He says, you care more about virtue signaling than virtue. Verse 42. Three, he says, you care more about being recognized than being corrupt. Verse 43. Four, he says, you care more about setting yourself apart than lifting others up. Verse 46. Five, he says, you care more about winning the argument than discovering the truth. That's verse 49. And six, he says, you care more about building your kingdom than God's. And I can think of nothing worse to have Jesus say to you. No wonder they got hostile. Now, if you're like me, when you read a story like this, it's, it's kind of easy to kind of like sit back, armchair quarterback, and be like, yeah, get him, Jesus. Go, Jesus, go. You tell those smug, self-righteous, hypocritical Pharisees exactly like it is. Get him, Jesus. Go on now. But, but here's the deal. 
If every time you read the stories of Jesus, you're always on team Jesus, and like, get him, Jesus, then you've completely missed the point of the story of Jesus. If every time you're like Jesus telling the Pharisees off, if every time you're like the prodigal father embracing the sinner, if every time you're like Jesus face palming because one of your disciples just did something stupid again, then you've missed the point. If you never find yourself as the enemy of Jesus, then you've missed the point of the fact that Jesus came to die for enemy. So here's what I would suggest to you today. We are not that different than the Pharisees. We may live in a different world. We may live in a different cultural context. The religion that we battle, that rivals Christianity in our hearts, may be very, very different, but at the end of the day, we share one core thing in common. And it is what I would call the human condition. Now, you've heard the human condition explained several times before. I want to explain it in a little bit of a different way. Uh, One, two, and three. Here's how I would define it. First, every human is looking for salvation. That's the human condition. In some way, shape, or form. Every human being is deeply religious, whether they admit it or not, because they are looking for something to save them out of the mundaneness and boredom of their life. You might call it meaning or purpose. You might call it faith. You might call it the good life, the American dream. In Eastern or more traditional cultures, they call it a life of honor. But whatever you call it, you're looking for something to save you, to give you that spark in life. Second, we tend to seek this out in one of two orientations, either horizontally or vertically. We either look for this salvation by looking around to our left and to our right and trying to find purpose or worth or the metrics of a good life by looking around us to others, or instead of looking around, we look up and get it from God. Now, third, I believe that the natural human inclination is toward the horizontal. And so don't you see? This is what Jesus slams in the Pharisees, their horizontal religion, and I believe if he was standing on this stage, this is what he would slam in us. Don't believe me? You don't believe me? Okay. Let's just track back one through six real quick, and you tell me if any of these are representative of the culture we find ourselves in today. One, you care more about curating the outside than cleaning the inside. Sound like us? Um, no, not, not me. That would never be us. Hold on just a second, though. Selfie! <laughs> Now let me put two filters on it and focus those people. Oh, look at how the light's on my face. Never mind, let's try that again. Selfie! <laughs> you know, it's just like, this is us. This is us. I mean, somebody explain to me why we have to spend like 30 minutes in front of the mirror getting this together every morning, and then 30 minutes in the closet getting the right outfit, and then like an hour at the gym, you know, chiseling our bodies, manicuring the outside. But then pastors have to beg us to spend five minutes reading scripture. Like for most of us, talk, we talk more at work about our sock subscription than we do Jesus. You wanna know why? It's because we're infatuated with the horizontal. It's where we get our approval and thus it's where we get our self-worth. It's where we get our purpose. It's where, it's where we're constantly looking. So, so we feel this pressure constantly to be documenting on Instagram our Insta-worthy life of our beautiful friends doing adventurous things with very, very cheeky or wise captions, smiling, laughing, eating, drinking, two filters on, doing things that cultured people do, like eating locally sourced food or drinking pour-overs. 
But look, here's what I found out as a being a pastor now for 10 years, here's what I found out. When you can get behind that, when you can get behind the highlight reel, when you get behind the veneer of people's lives, everybody's got their own dysfunction, everybody. This room right now, and I'm gonna tell you what, the chat right now, the people on this online audience, it's full. It's full of people who are struggling with various anxieties. It's full of people who are addicted and self-medicating. It's full of people who have personality deficiencies that are breaking let's just call it like it is, sins in their personality that are breaking their relationships with others. It's full of it. But don't you dare admit it. Don't you dare admit it. You gotta keep the outside in check. Here's the second thing Jesus says. Uh, He says, you care more about virtue signaling than virtue. Sound like our culture? Okay, so uh, Alan Noble uh, wrote a book a couple years ago, a really good book, in which he talks about this thing called thin beliefs. Thin beliefs. It's a phenomenon in our culture today. And uh, what he means by that is that basically everybody has a cause. You ever notice how everybody's got a cause? Everybody's so woke these days. They got their cause. Save the environment. Save the puppies. Save the children. Whatever. It's like everybody's got a cause. But, but when you get underneath the cause, it's pretty thin. They haven't thought that much about it, haven't studied that much on it, haven't given really at all to it, haven't served in it at all. Basically what happened was they saw their favorite actress do a speech on it at an award ceremony and then the next day they're ready to get on Facebook and hash it out with their Grammy in front of everybody. You're on the wrong side of history, Grammy. You've seen the conversations go down. Now why? Why do we do this? I'll tell you why. Because it's socially advantageous to seem compassionate and humanitarian in our culture. It wins us that approval. Makes us feel, at least for a moment, like we have some sort of purpose that's bigger than ourselves. And so we chase after it. We wear the the swag. We use the hashtags. We go to the fundraisers and the gala. We take a picture at the gala, post it on Instagram so everybody knows how strategically compassionate we are. And that's how we roll. Funny thing is, though, is that if you add up how much you wear to the gala, oftentimes it's more than you actually give at the gala. But that's another story. Okay, a fourth, no, third, third and fourth. Third, Jesus says you care more about being recognized than being corrupt. And you can go ahead, number four. He says you care more about setting yourself apart than lifting others up. Now, in these two, it's almost as if he pulls the horizontal and vertical apart, and he just says, look, these are going to be in competition to each other. What are you going to choose? What are you gonna choose? I think if you flesh it out and you put, a, like you put a scoreboard up for what scores in the horizontal worldview versus the vertical worldview, you would see that these virtues are totally different. Do, do we have that list? Yes, check this out. Horizontal, we tend to focus on things like achievement, reputation, recognition, success, wealth, comparison. And then the vertical, tend to focus on things like goodness, character, humility, kingdom, love, and mission. Now, I'm not saying that these things are mutually exclusive always, but they will come into competition sometimes. And the real tale of the tape for the Christian is which one will you choose when they compete with each other? Fifth, Jesus says you care more about winning the argument than discovering the truth, and isn't that wrong with, uh, what's wrong with our social discourse today? Especially online. Especially in politics. And six, Jesus says, you care more about building uh, your kingdom than God's kingdom. So we're not that different after all, are we? Real quick review. Can you throw one, two, three back up there? Let me say it to you again. Everyone's looking for salvation. 
Everyone. It's part of the human condition. We're deeply religious whether you knew it or not. Second, we tend to seek it in one of two orientations, either horizontally or vertically. And third, the natural human inclination is toward horizontal salvation first. You see? So uh, it was interesting. Uh, I was listening to a podcast recently by two pastors who are also cultural commentators, uh, uh, Mark Sayers and John Mark Comer. And uh, they did something interesting in this podcast. They actually diagnosed a specific brand of horizontal religion that we deal with today in America. They were like, basically, if Jesus was on stage and he gave the woe unto you to us, what would those sound like? If Jesus were to articulate, these are the false promises that your secular religion is giving to you today, what would be those promises that he would articulate? And uh, in order to do this, uh, they did something interesting. They took the four major mile-like markers of, of redemptive history, and they plugged in our secular system to these four mile markers. Now, you know what the four mile markers are, right? Creation, that's when everything was good. Fall, sin, that's when evil was introduced. Salvation, that's when we're redeemed from all that evil. And then heaven is when we just sort of like live in paradise forever. Now, what would it look like, they said, if we plugged in our horizontal secular religion into these four? This is what they came up with. They said, well, first, creation or Eden for us, the garden in our culture, is our inner self. Our undefiled, pure inner child that hasn't experienced any oppression from any external forces in this world. You're just able to kind of live free, be yourself, do you. That's, that's Eden, that's creation. Now next, the fall, sin is introduced into the equation. In our culture, sin is any external force that tells you what to do. Any external force that impresses upon you its opinion on your life. Like your mom and your dad, oh, it's oppression that they would actually tell you how to live. Like your church and your God, oh, what oppression it is that they would tell you anything that conflicts with your inner self. Like political authorities or really any authority figure out there, like preconceived norms and definitions around gender, class, you know, nationality, whatever. Or like external covenants, like marriage. It's all oppression. Don't tell me what to do with the inner me. And anything that does, well, that's, what, that's what's warped us over time. Is this resonating with you at all? Have you seen this sort of conversation? Okay, so this is why I believe we uh, live in such a victimized culture. A blame culture. Because you never have to take responsibility for your brokenness. You just look for something or someone to blame it on. That's who messed me up, that's who messed me up, and that's who messed me up. And if I could just get them out of my life and, and decode all the things that they put inside of me, then I would, I would get back to the inner me. Which, by the way, that's stage three. Salvation, in our secular perspective, is rediscovering your inner self. Shedding all the external things that oppressed you over time. This is why people are infatuated, by the way, with personality inventories. Like Enneagram, it's like a cult out there. By the way, I'm a three. I love the Enneagram. Okay, don't, some people are about to click off online because I'm hating on the Enneagram. Enneagram people, I'm, I've read the Ian Cron stuff. Okay, I'm with you. I'm just saying, this is why people are so obsessed with it because it's like, I gotta figure out who the inner me is. Okay, and then what's heaven? I'll get off the Enneagram before you leave. Stay. Um, what's heaven? Well, heaven is all of us just sort of self-actualizing together, happily ever after figuring out our inner selves and riding off into the sunset. Sounds nice, right? Sounds nice. Now, here's the only problem though, okay? And this is a big problem. Our horizontal, secular salvation system makes great promises 
But the problem is that it doesn't deliver. It doesn't deliver. It doesn't deliver on freedom. It says that it frees you from all these external norms and forces and stuff, but it doesn't. It just gives you a new set. Sure, it may free you from the values of family, faith, tradition, duty, honor, whatever, right? But it just gives you new ones, like achievement, comparison, hyper-individualism. You get passed from one slave driver to the next. And if you don't believe that this horizontal religion that we're living in and breathing in every day is a slave driver, just try to buck back against it. It will discipline you. It's this thing called political correctness. Buck back against political correctness and you will be disciplined. You will be disciplined online by Twitter mobs. You'll be disciplined by celebrities and politicians and their speeches. You will be disciplined by HR at your workplace, but you will be disciplined and you'll either normalize or get pushed out of the popular conversation. Don't you see? It doesn't deliver freedom. just delivers a new master. Here's what else it doesn't deliver. Salvation. Makes big promises. Hey, you do you. Be yourself. Unlock your inner greatness. Achieve your dreams. Big promises. Listen to all the commencement addresses that are like being given at at uh, college graduations now. They'll bring in like the heavy hitter celebrity and the heavy hitter celebrity will say something really cheeky, like a cheeky funny joke to get the college students laughing. Then they'll say, fail hard, fail fast, check on your celebrity bingo. Then uh, they'll say, unlock your inner greatness and then they'll say, achieve your dreams. It's like every time. And they always do it really, really well. And I'm like, man, that was a good speech. But I also think it's awfully convenient for a millionaire to say, fail hard, fail fast, and then you'll achieve your dreams. Because what does the other 99% do? The other 99% of us fail hard, fail fast, and try to unlock our inner greatness for the next 15 years, and all of a sudden we find ourselves in our late 30s in middle management, which is a pretty good life, but you can't enjoy it because you're wondering, have I really unlocked my inner greatness? Do you realize how crushing of a burden it is to have to unlock your inner greatness and achieve your dreams in order to live a good life? No wonder there's so much depression and disillusionment. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, we're pretty blessed people, aren't we? You ever have those moments of gratitude where it rushes over you and you're like, gosh, I have a great life. If you make $30,000 or more a year, you're in the top 1% of wage earners on the planet Earth. Think about that. 17K or more a year, you're in the top 5% of wage earners on the planet Earth. Think about that. Most of us, life might not be lavish and luxurious, but we've got a roof over our heads, clothes on our back, food on the table, people who love us. We live in a country that's free. Pretty good life. Yeah, praise God, and praise God for that. Pretty good life. Here's the tragedy, though. We can't enjoy it, because in the back of our mind, we just are all constantly thinking, but is this really it? Have I unlocked my inner greatness? Have I achieved my dreams? Maybe I need to fail hard and fail fast. This is why there's a mental health epidemic in our our country today, or one of the reasons I feel, because people are just so anxious and depressed about whether or not they've truly self-actualized to the point of purpose. This is why we live in what I would call a doping culture. Everybody's self-medicating. Self-medicating on porn, they're self-medicating on gambling, drugs, prescription meds, alcohol, self-medicating on screens, streaming services, 
So David Foster Wallace, a brilliant, brilliant guy, award-winning 20th century writer and also an atheist, uh, wrote this once. He said, here's something that's weird but true. Remember, he's an atheist. Here's something that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as atheism, he says. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what? We worship. And again, he's an atheist. He goes on, he says, the compelling reason for maybe choosing God is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, you'll never feel like you have enough. Worship your body, beauty, sexual allure, you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you'll feel weak and afraid. And you'll need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. And man, is he right. So maybe, I'll suggest to you something today, maybe, just maybe, constantly indulging on more isn't the key to contentment. Maybe, Discovering your inner self isn't the path to inner peace. Maybe doing whatever you feel like, whenever you feel like it, isn't wise, healthy, or considerate to others. Maybe, y'all, maybe the American dream is really the American demise. Just maybe. See, here's, here's all I know. I know that we live in a country right now that has more stuff, more tech, more access, more connectivity than ever before. But we're not happy. We're lonely. We live in a country right now that has more freedom and self-autonomy than ever before, but we're not united. We are divided, partisan, angry, and violent. Luxuries are more luxurious. Food tastes better. Sex is more accessible. The world's been flattened and globalized. But are we... Are we really fulfilled? I think it'd be a really hard argument to make because I see disillusionment all around me. Now, here's the good news, y'all. Here's the good news. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is good news. There's a better way. There's hope. There's a better promise. And there's a promise giver who's better because he's a promise keeper. And he has a name, and his name is Jesus. In a totally different conversation with another Pharisee in John chapter 3, this is what Jesus says to him. It says, there was a man named Nicodemus, Jewish leader, who was a Pharisee. And after dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. But you've got to be born again. So are you ready? Are you ready to stop performing and step in to the deep acceptance of a heavenly father who loves you? Are you ready to step out from underneath the burden of success, achievement, and achieving your dream and step into the unconditional love of Jesus? Are you ready to stop striving and start living? I'm ready for you. Oh, I'm so ready for you. But here's the deal. This is what Jesus says. Simple. If you want it, you gotta be born again. You have to die to the horizontal and raise your eyes to the vertical. 
In fact, that's what baptism is. Y'all know a little bit about baptism here, uh, like 122 times already this year. Praise God for that. Uh, Okay, and you know what baptism, I'll tell you what baptism is. It's just this dying to the horizontal. When you're buried underneath the water, this is what Romans 6 teaches. You die to the old way. You die to the need for horizontal approval. You die to the horizontal metrics that have been enslaving you. And then when you are lifted up out of the water, you rise again with new life, new mission, new DNA, new motivation, and a new spiritual family that will help you along the way. Aren't you ready? Are you ready to take off the mask? Okay, some of you are sitting here thinking today, like, geez, if the people only knew, if the people of that church only knew all the junk that I was going through, all the sin in my life, they won't want me around. If that's you today, I want to speak very clearly to you. No, they wouldn't. Okay, you don't know this church if that's what you think, because no, they wouldn't. But even if they did, listen to me, listen to me, look at, look at the screen, man, listen to me. Even if they did, who cares? Who cares? That's the horizontal framework, the horizontal mindset still ruling you. Who cares? There's only one opinion that will matter two billion years from now. And it's not theirs and it's not theirs. It's his. So are you ready? I'm ready for you. And my prayer for you is that you would have the courage, but also begin to experience the joy of the vertical today. It's just one step away. But Jesus said it, you gotta be you got to be born again. So that is my prayer over this room right now, God, is that you would work in hearts. For some of us, we need to be born again and again, you know, like for the second time or for the tenth time or for the hundredth time. Renew us. Renew our hearts and our eyes to look upwards and begin living the vertical life where we get our, our, our approval, our purpose, our worth, our metrics from you. But for some in this room, for some who are watching this online, they, th- they thought they were just going to jump online and get a quick TED talk and sign off, but all of a sudden the Holy Spirit's stirring them. They feel like they need a move in their hearts. For those people right now, I pray that they would make a move today and be born again. Thank you for Jesus. He is the better promise giver and the better promise keeper. It's in his powerful name we pray. Amen. Well, hey, uh, I want to thank you for having me. I really appreciate that. And uh, here's what I would tell you. If uh, you are new here, or if you're new online, we want to know you. So new people here, go on over to the camera after you're done. Somebody will be there to meet you. New people online, please reach out to us, okay? Don't, don't do church alone. Next time, uh, come, come to church with us. There's a little tab on the Whitewater website that uh, allows you to plan your visit. So plan your visit and let us know that you're here. But more importantly than that, if you want to make the decision and be baptized, whether you're online or in the room, uh, folks who want to be baptized, you can come up front. There'll be people here to pray for you. And uh, folks online, reach out to the church. Call the office, email us, and we will get that uh, scheduled and we'll get to talk to you more about what that means for your life going forward. Thanks again. Let's go out and be a beacon of light and love in our communities. Love you guys. Have a good one.